Hi, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Sajan Bakta and Dr. Patil Armenian. Hi, everyone. Hello. Today, we're going to be talking about pediatric bradycardia. So Sajin, kick us off on pediatric bradycardia. Bradycardia is an ominous sign in pediatrics. We know that the resting heart rate of a child is usually much faster than that of an adult. And so when we see abnormally low rates, we must be prepared to think quickly and act quickly. Be sure to check out episode 29 for a broader overview of bradyarrhythmias. And closely related is episode 55 regarding pediatric respiratory distress. These will provide a good foundation for the topics covered in this episode. In children specifically, we should know the normal vital signs to know the abnormal vital signs. So in infants less than two years old, we think of bradycardia as a heart rate less than 100. Toddlers aged two to five, we think of heart rate less than 80. School-aged children aged five to eight, we think of a heart rate less than 70. And adolescents to adults, a heart rate less than 60. Now, our SEMSA protocol simplifies this even further using a heart rate less than 80 for age less than one year and a heart rate less than 60 for everyone else. Now, it's really important to recognize this and to treat this. A recent review in pre-hospital emergency care, an article published in January of 2022, examined several thousand pre-hospital encounters of children with abnormal presenting signs. They found that Although ACLS and PALS guidelines were most adhered to when the abnormal vital sign was altered mental status or hypotension, the guidelines were rarely followed when the first documented heart rate was less than 60. So either the EMS providers are ignoring the heart rate or not knowing what to do when they encounter it. And so we're going to discuss the importance, the assessment, and the management so you can be the provider that does address this problem. And it's important because... The mortality rate for bradycardia, if it is true bradycardia, can be pretty high. Um, In untreated complete heart block, it can be up to 8% mortality. And bradycardia is associated with increased risk of sudden death in any unoperated or operated patients who have had congenital heart disease. Uh, As an example, the incidence of sudden death with bradycardia after congenital heart defect repair is about 2.5%. So there are cases of asymptomatic bradycardia that don't require intervention, but we want to keep our index of suspicion as high as possible. We will be on the receiving end of these 911 calls. We should assume that any call you respond to will have either some symptoms or something serious that happened prior to your arrival if they're asymptomatic by the time you get there. And the heart rate should be taken into consideration when you're completing your assessment of these patients. So, Pontia, why don't you take us through the pathophysiology of bradycardia? Sure. Bradycardia can be the cause or consequence of a patient's underlying disease process. So causes for bradycardia stem from two main areas. The first, problems with electrical conduction through the heart, which is going to be your AV nodal blocks or problems with the nervous system controlling the rate of the heart. Now, the most common causes of bradycardia in children are hypoxia, increased vagal tone, medications, and congenital heart disease, or someone with congenital heart disease who then had it repaired. Let's talk about 
the conduction system of the heart. This starts in the right atrium at the sinus node, and these cells automatically fire at a rate appropriate for a patient's age, sending an electrical signal to the rest of the heart to beat in a coordinated fashion. From the sinus node, electrical impulse travels around the atria and cause the atria to contract. The impulse then reaches the AV node, which lies in between the atria and ventricles, and is responsible for coordinating synchrony between the upper and lower chambers of the heart. The impulse then travels out of the AV node via the Hisperkinji system and out through the ventricles to cause a synchronous ventricular contraction. The two main sites of development of bradycardia are the sinus node and the AV node. However, severe bradycardia can be due to both sinus and AV node dysfunction. Let's talk about some problems with conduction. So the first is, you know, sinus bradycardia. Um, And the most common type of bradycardia in children is the slowed output from the sinus node. The most common cause of pathologic sinus bradycardia in children is hypoxia. That is why all of our pathways talk about oxygen and stimulation and getting these kids to breathe. So really consider bradycardia to be hypoxia until proven otherwise. Hypoxia in an adult typically triggers the sympathetic nervous system, and we see tachycardia in response to hypoxia, and bradycardia is often a late-stage finding. In contrast, bradycardia in babies and young children may be the first sign of hypoxia. A child's immature nervous system has a better developed parasympathetic nervous system, so babies spend a lot of time eating and sleeping, not so much time engaged in the fight-or-flight activities. So as a result, hypoxia triggers a vagal response and slows the heart. Infants and small children have a cardiac output that is very rate-dependent. So you probably remember from medic school or nursing school or medical school that cardiac output equals your heart rate times your stroke volume. So what that means is the volume of blood that comes out of your heart times your heart rate equals the cardiac output, like what, what can come out. So adults with bigger hearts can rely on how strong their heart can squeeze. However, pediatric patients are very reliant on their heart rate and cannot alter their stroke volume very much. Bradycardia significantly lowers cardiac output and oxygen delivery. Hypoxia and hypercarbia worsen, then they get acidotic, which then further decreases the myocardium. So it's kind of this vicious cycle. Cardiac arrest occurs very quickly in the hypoxic child and must be treated urgently with oxygen and ventilation. In one study, among about 1,000 children with respiratory distress, all cardiac arrests were preceded by hypoxemia and bradycardia. Causes of hypoxia can range from viral bronchiolitis, like RSV. As you guys know, right now we're having a big RSV surge in Fresno County. These newborns get apnea. They start holding their breaths and have these breath-holding spells. They can have pneumonia. And really check out podcast number episode 23 for a really deep dive into pediatric respiratory distress. Hypoxia can also occur iatrogenically, meaning as we providers can cause hypoxia. If we're giving our patient any medication that may depress the respiratory rate, so example, fentanyl for pain or a benzodiazepine like Versed for mild sedation, we can cause hypoxia and this bradycardia ourselves. Sajin, why don't you go through some examples of increased vagal tone that can really cause bradycardia? So the vagal nerve can be stimulated, again, in a child very easily due to hypoxia, but there can also be increased vagal tone if there's any nasopharyngeal or esophageal stimulation. For example, if there's any foreign body in the nose or nasal packing, um, that can stimulate the vagus nerve and slow down the heart rate. Also, endotracheal tubes or nasopharyngeal tubes. Gastroesophageal reflux or vomiting can also cause an increased vagal tone. Coughing, obstructive sleep apnea, 
And then there is something known as the Cushing reflex, which is elevated intracranial pressure, which can cause increased vagal tone and slow down the heart rate. There are also many other causes of sinus bradycardia. Uh, We talked a little bit about congenital heart diseases, but up to 5% of patients with repaired congenital heart disease will have a heart block and specifically sinus bradycardia. You can have acquired cardiomyopathies, uh, infections from a virus that can cause damage to the heart, things like Kawasaki's disease, there's familial dilated cardiomyopathy. There are also other congenital syndromes such as long QT syndromes or sodium channelopathies that can cause conduction abnormalities in the heart. Other underlying reasons for a patient to have sinus bradycardia are hypothermia, hypothyroidism, intoxication with alcohol, marijuana, opiates, uh, trauma that can be intracranial, again, causing the Cushing reflex, or blunt thoracic trauma directly to the heart. Additionally, we should also be very cautious of any medications that the patient could have taken, specifically digoxin, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, amiodarone, lithium, clonidine. There are many medications that a child could get into that even very small doses can cause a pretty significant depression in the heart rate. Patil, you want to walk us through AV dysfunction? Yeah. So let's talk about all the different types of of AV blocks or heart blocks um, that one can have. So first degree AV block is actually not typically associated with bradycardia. Really, what we see with that is a prolonged PR interval of greater than 200 milliseconds, which is this big delay between the atrium contracting and then the ventricle contracting. Once we get to second-degree heart blocks is when we might start seeing um, possibly bradycardia, and these are identified by drop beats, where some beats do not conduct down the AV node at all and therefore don't result in a ventricular contraction. So a type 1 second-degree heart block is defined by progressively prolonging PR interval until a drop beat occurs. And a type 2 second-degree heart block is a consistent PR interval. However, there are randomly dropped beats. Now, the really bad one is the third-degree heart block, which is a complete dissociation between the atria and ventricles. Basically, the atria will be contracting at their own speed, and these contractions don't travel down to the ventricles at all. And then the ventricles are just doing their own thing, and they're firing at their own speed, unrelated to contractions of the atria. And so this is where you could see a pretty profound bradycardia and hypotension. Medication-wise, there are actually medications that can cause heart blocks um, and AV dysfunction. The big four, there's there's a big four. So you would think it's all of your blood pressure medicines. That's not the case. The ones where we really see it are beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, clonidine or other centrally acting alpha-2 agonists, and digoxin, or dig-like substances. And then there's autoimmune or infectious causes such as lupus, Lyme disease, and Chagas disease, and electrolyte abnormalities um, such as both hypo and hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, and hypoglycemia. So obviously there's a lot of causes um, for this and keeping the differential broad will help you to most accurately diagnose and treat these patients. Like we mentioned, it's probably hypoxia. So think hypoxia, hypoxia, then if not, you can think about all these other things. So I'd love to jump in with a case here. And it's actually a case that I was a part of as 
I think I was a medical student doing a ride along um, here in Fresno. It was the middle of the night and we were responding to a five-year-old. You know, the call was for altered mental status. And we arrived to this home and the child was laying on the parent's bed. And the parents said that the child had fallen off the bed about an hour before. And he cried immediately, didn't seem to have any problems or complications um, until they tried to take him to his own bed and realized that he wasn't waking up as well as he should. And he wasn't acting as normal self. We got there pretty quickly after the call, and we were also having trouble arousing this kid. He would wake up a little bit, but definitely was very quick to fall asleep again. And on our initial assessment, his heart rate was in the 70s and wasn't quite as low as 60, but we knew that this bradycardia may be, again, an ominous sign for what's going on. Uh, Very astutely, the medic and the EMT that I was working with uh, placed the patient on oxygen, performed some airway maneuvers, and then very quickly got the patient on the gurney to try and get him to the hospital. You know, it took maybe about two minutes to get onto the rig. The patient was waking up slightly. Heart rate was still pretty low. And so the medic was awesome, was able to get IV access in this kid and actually gave him a dose of atropine. Between the oxygen and the face mask and the atropine, by the time we got to the hospital, the patient was much more awake and alert and looked to be coming around back to himself. Thankfully, you know, following up on the patient a few days later, it was discharged okay. He did have an episode of a seizure while in the hospital. And we think that maybe what happened um, just prior to us getting there was that maybe he had a seizure and he was hypoxic for a short while. And then he was bradycardic after that. Could have been postictal um, or he could have been bradycardic from a little bit of hypoxia. Um, thankfully, didn't appear to have any major trauma to the head, but that was also in our differential. So I think it was a good save and a good case by the medics to treat the most common causes and kind of go down the algorithm. And thankfully, the patient had a good outcome. I think the history of falling off the bed kind of makes your brain go to trauma, like they have a head bleed that's then causing them to be hypoxic or not breathing enough. So it's interesting that that wasn't it at all. But I mean, you're going to treat it all the same with oxygen, but good, great case. Yeah. So we can jump into the assessment and management um, portion of the podcast too. Because there are so many potential causes, you know, the history becomes incredibly important, especially because the clinical presentation can range from a brief episode of syncope, and now the patient is asymptomatic, all the way to hemodynamic instability and altered mental status and coma. And this is amplified in pediatric patients who can't always provide a history themselves. We really rely on supplemental information. So when you get to the scene, Please, from the ED physician's perspective, collect as much information as you can. Get rhythm strips as soon as you can. Save them for the hospital providers. Even transient rhythm changes can be the difference between identifying a life-threatening problem and missing it. Um, Additionally, things you can get from the scene. Many of the medications we mentioned earlier are mainly for adult use and Ingestion of even small amounts of these medications can have profound effects in children. Be sure to not only obtain the patient's medication history, but if it's appropriate, you can find out what other medications are accessible at home and see if the patient potentially got into any of the other medications. Again, 
the best and most rapid way to treat an arrhythmia and a slow rhythm is by finding and treating the underlying cause. So the first steps in assessment and management are always going to be the ABCs. As with all abnormal rhythms, we'll broadly categorize the patient's presentation into stable versus unstable. Unstable bradycardic patients are defined as having ultramental status. And just remember that in pediatrics, this can be really difficult to assess. So we're really going to trust the parents. If they tell us their patient is not behaving normally, then that's really important to know. Syncope is also a definition of an unstable bradycardic patient. Hypotension, severe chest pain, or signs of shock, which is poor distal perfusion or delayed cap refill. It's important to continue to reassess also for these signs of instability throughout the patient encounter and throughout the transport to determine if you need to change your interventions at any point. Unstable patients with bradycardia are actually going to need immediate therapy. And so for this, we're going to follow our PALS algorithms. And just to quickly review PALS, first step, establish that the patient has bradycardia. And then you're going to want to see if there's any cardiopulmonary compromise, such as acute altered mental status, signs of shock, or hypotension. Now, if there isn't any of those things, then you could consider oxygen, observe, can do a 12-lead EKG, and identify and treat underlying causes. Now, if you do have cardiopulmonary compromise, then you're going to want to maintain a patent airway, assist breathing with positive pressure ventilation and oxygen as necessary, and put them on a cardiac monitor to identify the rhythm. And then if the heart rate is less than 60 per minute, even if they're oxygenating and ventilating okay, you still need to start CPR. Now, if the bradycardia persists, then you continue CPR, you establish access, you give epinephrine, atropine, consider pacing, um, and basically check their pulse every two minutes. And if they don't have a pulse, then you actually have to jump into your pediatric cardiac arrest algorithm. Remember that this is the this is the PALS protocol and year individual EMS system protocols may vary. I also want to make a comment about this too, that when we talk about positive pressure ventilation, so bagging a patient, it's really important that pediatric patients, um, you can vaguely stimulate them by putting pressure on their eyes. So make sure you have a very adequately mask when you bag valve mask them, that you're not accidentally putting your hand or pressure on their eyeballs. You actually can make their bradycardia worse by putting pressure on their face. Let's also just quickly go back and remind ourselves of our medication doses in PALS. So for kids, epinephrine is going to be 0.01 mg per kg, and then atropine is going to be 0.02 mg per kg. IV or IO, don't be afraid to obtain rapid IV or IO access in these unstable patients. It can be the difference between life and death for them. And then if these medications don't work, then your next step is going to be cardiac pacing, But again, if the underlying cause isn't treated, cardiac pacing might not work, but you can try it. And then remember that the most common cause is a hypoxia. So we're really going to try to fix that when you're working through uh, this algorithm. Now, in our SEMSA protocol, again, the definition of bradycardia is a little more simplified. It's less than 80 beats per minute in infants less than one year of age and less than 60 beats per minute in children one year to 12 years of age. So... Again, this is very similar to the PALS algorithm. We're going to focus on the airway and oxygenation first. We're going to continue doing CPR if the heart rate is less than 60 beats per minute. 
going to continue to assess for signs of poor perfusion, respiratory distress, delayed cap refill, and consider our medications, epinephrine and atropine, transport as quickly as possible, and consider a fluid challenge. Again, there's a note in here, most bradycardia in children is due to hypoxia. There's a reason we keep saying it over and over again. Just remember, maintain the airway, supply supplemental oxygen, bag valve mask, and again, to Danielle's point, make sure you're not performing any further vagal stimulation by pressing on the eyes or jamming anything in the back of the nose or the throat, if you can help it. Let's go through our summary take-home points. What do we want our medics in the field to remember from this podcast? Patio. Well, I'll just say the thing we keep saying, which is that bradycardia in a pediatric patient is hypoxia until proven otherwise. Sajin. Remember how to identify the difference between stable and unstable patients, altered mental status, poor cap refill or perfusion, and low blood pressure. And my take-home point is just memorize these two drugs. When you do have this case, it's going to be super stressful, right? you got stressed out parents. EMS professionals are stressed out. The hospital, were stressed out. So remember, epinephrine, 0.01 mg per kilogram, and atropine, 0.02 mg per kilo. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, and we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.